This is the East Trauma Cast. Welcome to the next Trauma Cast. I'm Lauren Dudas, an acute care surgeon from West Virginia University in Morgantown, West Virginia. Before we get started, we'd like to say thank you to Hemanetics for their generous and unrestricted educational grant for the Online Education Committee and TraumaCast. Today, we are going to discuss an unfortunately common clinical diagnosis with wide variation in screening and intervention. We have a large group with some new guest moderators we're excited to introduce. So without further delay, I'll allow everyone to introduce themselves and where they're from. Jeremy, let's start with you. Hi, I'm Jeremy Levin. I'm a acute care surgery fellow at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Hi, I'm Samantha Terrace. I'm an acute care surgeon at Detroit Receiving Hospital, Wayne State University. Hi, I'm Pat McGonigal. I'm an acute care surgeon at the University of Iowa. And our guest speakers today, we have spread outside the realms of our East group to have a pharmacist as well as one of our trauma surgeons. Lisa, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi there, Lisa Kadatic. I am an assistant professor of surgery at Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut, and it's great to be here. I'm Jennifer Beavers. I am one of the clinical pharmacists with the trauma service at Vanderbilt University. And now, Jeremy, I turn the podcast over to you. All right. Well, thank you for everyone being on this. It should be a good discussion. Talking amongst our group, we had a lot of interest in alcohol withdrawal and really uh, the varying ways one can treat it, identify and the complexity of it when you start throwing in our trauma patients that are maybe polysubstance abuse, their polytrauma, their physiology is off. And so identifying patients at risk for alcohol withdrawal and the treatment of it's very germane to what we do. And so the best way to start off, I think, is we can start talking about alcohol withdrawal physiologically, pathophysiologically, how it shows up clinically. And maybe, Jen, if you can kind of take us through alcohol withdrawal in terms of the receptors, how they're up and down regulated, and how we should keep that in mind when we start identifying patients at risk. Absolutely. So alcohol works on both the GABA receptor and is also an NMDA antagonist. And at low levels, you're going to activate the GABA-A receptor, which is going to get the expected results of decreased anxiety and decreased inhibition. However, when you have prolonged alcohol at high levels, in order to create a new homeostasis, you're going to downregulate the GABA receptors and we're going to upregulate those NMDA receptors. So when you all of a sudden pull off that alcohol, you then have this imbalance between excitatory and inhibitory signals. So you're going to have this excess glutamate and norepinephrine, but you're also going to have decreased GABA signaling, and that's due to not only decreased endogenous GABA, but also a change in the actual GABA-A receptor binding site. And that's going to lead to the symptoms that we know as classical alcohol withdrawal, which can be your tremors and your seizure and then the delirium. And so just knowing the different receptors that alcohol works on and what happens whenever you remove that alcohol that gives us an idea of what medications we may be able to use in order to treat this. All right, great. And hearing that, Dr. Kadotic, how does that relate to you clinically when you're seeing a patient and what you see manifest? So this is a common issue among our trauma patients. I think one of the most important things we can do is screen for alcohol use disorders among our trauma patients. And, and hopefully I'll get a moment to talk a little bit more about that uh, later on, but one of the things we do here at Yale, we check a UTOX on every trauma patient coming in. And I know in many states that is not done due to concerns about litigious action and inability to have the care of the trauma patient 
paid for if it's determined that they were under the influence of alcohol at the time that they were injured. So I, I know many institutions don't do that, but we screen for the urine tox alcohol level. And then as part of our tertiary survey for our trauma patients, we do the audit scale, which is the alcohol use disorders identification test, as well as the cage questionnaire. So I think that's your first step certainly to assess risk in all of your patients. As we all know, many of our patients are unable to talk to us after their injury. Perhaps they're intubated in the ICU setting. And that's maybe when speaking with family members about risk for alcohol use disorders is important. And I think in general, assessing risk and recognizing which patients may be more likely to have alcohol withdrawal syndrome, and then recognizing ways to to prevent that during their treatment course. Lisa, to play off that a little bit more, who are the specific populations that you want to focus on alcohol withdrawal scales and potentially pharmacologic treatment for potential alcohol withdrawal? Sure. So I think every institution probably has their own approach to how this is done. Certainly at our institution, we determine risk for alcohol withdrawal syndrome using a number of different factors namely previous history of delirium tremens with or without history of alcohol withdrawal seizures. That's going to place somebody at high risk for alcohol withdrawal syndrome. And that's either a self-reported history for those able to speak with us or history we can gather from family members. Medium risk for alcohol withdrawal syndrome may be those who have active alcohol dependence two or more days since their last drink, And certainly those patients who have a positive blood alcohol level at the time of admission, that should warrant some concern for risk of alcohol withdrawal. And there's some lab tests that we can look at as well. The AST to ALT ratio might be one to consider. For example, if that's greater than 1.5 to one, that is one of the criteria that we'll look at in our protocol. And then We also have to consider the patient's risk of sedation and respiratory compromise, and that might help us understand which type of pharmacologic therapy we might offer. So Lisa, I know you have done work on the recent East PNG on alcohol screening, which obviously is very pertinent to what we're discussing here. So could you take us through what that PNG says and what we can do with it? Absolutely. So As I think many of you know, the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma has recommended that all trauma centers incorporate what we refer to as ESPERT, which is an acronym for Alcohol Screening, Brief Intervention, and Referral to Treatment. And this is really part of standard trauma care. So as part of our verification requirements, all level one and level two centers must provide screening for hazardous alcohol use behaviors and provide an intervention and referral by trained staff. Many times this is a social worker who may be engaged in doing so. EAST recognized, however, that while these expert recommendations have been in place for well over a decade, there really were no evidence-based guidelines for routine clinical practice. And so our EAST Injury Prevention Task Force felt that this was a pertinent area to conduct a systematic review of the literature to assess really the impact of expert programs as compared to usual trauma care in terms of preventing and reducing re-injury, readmission, alcohol-related offenses, and alcohol consumption. We know that probably about 50%, close to 50% of patients seen in level one trauma centers would screen positive for hazardous alcohol use. 
Again, that's maybe a fairly liberal uh, definition in terms of defining alcohol use, which puts them at risk for future alcohol-related problems. And then there are data to suggest that alcohol use contributes to as much as 40% of trauma re-injury cases or trauma recidivism. So we think this is really an opportunity to intervene and hopefully prevent injury in the future. So East PMG looked at screening and referral to treatment for appropriate patients versus usual care. And ultimately, we did find that the overall evidence was fairly low quality, but the effect size was large. And ultimately, we did make a conditional recommendation for emergency department, trauma center, and hospital-based alcohol screening and brief intervention with referral to treatment for patients demonstrating signs of alcohol use disorders. And again, we did find evidence to suggest that this reduces alcohol-related re-injury, which is what we were most interested in. I can expand upon that a little bit, but certainly... Thanks for uh, bringing it up, Jeremy, and the PMG is published and, and happy for you all to take a look at that as well. Lisa, did admission blood alcohol level play any role in screening or is there a certain cutoff for patients that would be at higher risk based on their admission alcohol level? So we did not specifically, this was one of the the limitations of the PMG systematic review is that based on your trauma center's protocol, Everybody does this a little bit differently. So interestingly, I would say more centers than not are not using blood alcohol level as an initial screening modality. We do it here at my facility in Connecticut, but last I checked at least 38 of the 50 states in our country have statutes in place which can allow insurance carriers to deny payment for medical bills associated with injuries sustained while the patient was intoxicated. So if we have biochemical evidence of their intoxication at the time that they're admitted for traumatic injuries, this may in fact limit the ability to receive payment for the care rendered to that patient. So there's been some surveys of our trauma surgeon population. I think AAST and West maybe did a survey not too long ago. And in that survey, they found that 27% of surgeons perceive alcohol screening to be a potential threat to reimbursement. And certainly each individual center is going to develop their own protocols, but one way to perhaps avoid the objective data of having a blood alcohol level would be to use something like the audit C, the alcohol use disorders identification test C, which is a three item survey, very quick, very easy to do, or the cage questionnaire, which I think perhaps many of us are familiar with that as well. Those are also excellent ways to screen. We did not specifically look at which screening method was used because you look at different papers, different institutions are using different types of screening methodology. I think the most important part is that you are screening in some way to try and recognize patients who are at higher risk for alcohol use disorders and really trauma recidivism, which I think is a key piece in terms of what we're trying to prevent. You know, we know many of these patients will succumb to recurrent injury related to alcohol use. I have a quick question about screening. Do you find who is the most effective at screening? Should it be social workers? Should it be physicians in terms of having accurate screening or a useful interaction? That's a great point. Anybody can do the screening. And I think we did address that in our PMG to some extent. Really, a physician, a nurse, a social worker, anybody can be taught 
how to do this. And certainly there's plenty of online materials available for those who are interested in this expert type intervention. At our institution, we obtain a urine tox for any trauma patient that's admitted. And that's really sort of our first biochemical screen. And then our resident staff conduct a tertiary survey of all of our trauma patients. And at that time, they conduct the audit C and the cage questionnaire. So in our, our case, it's resident physicians who are doing this. And if they recognize a patient who is at risk for alcohol use disorders, then a social worker consult is placed and the social worker then meets with the patient and provides additional resources and referral to treatment for alcohol use disorders. So that's how it works here. But I think you could imagine anybody who who is able to speak with the patient, cares for the patient and able to, to make these assessments. To piggyback off that, our nurses do it at Vanderbilt, but we have with pharmacy, we are responsible for all the med histories for our patients. And so sometimes we will go ahead and also screen while we're doing our med histories if we're not sure that someone has actually been screened yet. All right, so we've identified someone by screening that's at risk. What are the next steps then? How do we decide if we need to intervene or what kind of time course of symptoms should we expect? I think one great scale that's actually been developed is the PAUSE scale by Maldonado and Stanford, which is it's a very easy scale to use. The one thing is it does rely on blood alcohol levels. That would be one limitation for centers who don't get blood alcohol levels, but it does emphasize on the biggest risk factors for severe or complicated withdrawals. And that's the history of having alcohol withdrawals, specifically patients that have had a history of DTs or alcohol seizures. So I definitely think it's a very useful tool to use and has been, they have validated at their center in medically ill patients. So one question I have is how do you tease out the patient that's at risk for alcohol withdrawal that happens to have maybe a TBI, their GCS of 13, 14, they're a bit confused and not answering questions. And then throw on top of that, they have fractures, they have rib fractures, their legs are broken. So their physiology may be tachycardic, maybe a little bit hypertensive for pain. How do you suss those patients out, identify the ones at risk and then treat those ones subsequently? That's tough, Jeremy. (laughs) But that's, I guess, why why we do what we do. To tell you, I was just taking care of that patient recently in the ICU, a gentleman with polytrauma, acute on chronic liver failure, renal failure, and what we were very worried about, you know, was, was alcohol withdrawal syndrome as well. He did not have a TBI though, but yes, I think our TBI population, it's challenging. And I think my strategy, if I am worried about an alcohol use history that places somebody at risk, I tend to treat. And even if I'm not certain that the sort of hyperactivity that I'm seeing or any number of symptoms that could be attributed to alcohol withdrawal, but could also be attributed to the ICU delirium or the pathophysiology that brought the patient to the hospital. I think we have some very safe options, certainly in the ICU setting with continuous monitoring. I think we have safe options to treat patients. And I have a fairly low threshold to, to treat these patients with phenobarbital monotherapy protocol if I'm worried about alcohol withdrawal as part of their constellation of findings that I see. Certainly, there's a lot of different ways to, to treat this. And you know, if you look at the guidelines, I know Jenna shared 
with me some, some recent guidelines. If you're experienced with the use of phenobarbital, I think it's a nice way to, to treat these critically ill patients who have a lot of other active issues that you're also treating. And certainly I, I wouldn't want to miss somebody who's having alcohol withdrawal that I could treat. And so I have a low threshold to treat if there is considerable risk. And certainly you want to rule out other causes for delirium, you know, all of your common issues, infection, electrolyte disturbances. If you've ruled out a number of those issues and you're, you're still concerned about this process contributing, then, and then I think, you know, very appropriate to treat. The 2020 ASAN guidelines do agree with what you're saying, Lisa, and that if you aren't sure, you don't have the information, they don't have family or the, and the patient can't answer themselves, but you are worried about alcohol withdrawal, but just don't have that definite evidence that they are definitely at risk. They actually do agree with being more aggressive in treating these patients. I mean, I agree with, we obviously do, you know, we do phenobarbital as well at Vanderbilt. And so you can always start with lower doses if you're still not absolutely sure. You can always give more medication if you do, the diagnosis does present that it is alcohol withdrawal. Jennifer, can you explain to us how phenobarbital works in this situation? I think some of us aren't super comfortable in using it and haven't really used it at our centers. Absolutely. I can tell you, it was a, we started our protocol back at the end of 2019. So we're about a, a little over a year into using it. And I can say at first, when we were developing our new protocol, I was a little skeptical. And I think we were all taught that phenobarbital has a very narrow therapeutic window and it was a dangerous drug. It was an old drug. You shouldn't use it. And so I, I had a hard time at first jumping on board with it. But when you look at the mechanism of action with phenobarbital, it really does make sense with the pathophysiology of alcohol withdrawal. It works on GABA receptors, but it doesn't rely on endogenous GABA to work. Unlike your benzodiazepines, you have to have endogenous GABA for it to actually work. So it can, will stimulate GABA receptors without the, without the need for endogenous GABA. And then second, it's also an AMPA and a kinetic receptor antagonist, which is also receptors that glutamate works on. So you're also shutting down that excitatory reaction that's going on in alcohol withdrawal. So it's hitting both aspects of alcohol withdrawal versus benzodiazepines, you're only getting the GABA effects. You're leaving that glutamate unchecked, which is why a lot of adjuncts get added on like your alpha two agonist to help with those types of symptoms. And then also that's why you see we, the proposed mechanism for benzo, benzodiazepine refractory alcohol withdrawal is because these patients don't have enough endogenous GABA and thus the benzodiazepines are just not working as well. And so You've seen studies where they actually use phenobarbital as an adjunct or they add it on after they get to extremely high doses of benzodiazepines. And so for us, when we were developing our protocol, we have found that with any protocol, the simpler, the better. And if we could get away with one medication that could treat it, treat it all, then that to us seemed to be better. And then as a, for the safety aspect of it, which was obviously probably my bigger concern, and I think everyone's biggest concern, there have actually been quite a few studies out recently, probably in the, within the last 10 years. One of them was in a MICU with patients that were admitted to the MICU for alcohol withdrawal who were still scoring greater than 15 on the CUA scale despite adequate treatment. They were transferred to the MICU and switched over to a phenobarbital symptom triggered using RAS. 
And those patients were able to tolerate up to 25 mg per kg of cumulative phenobarbital. And then on addition to that, they had actually already gotten 24 milligrams of adamant on top of that. And none of them, the only the patients that did require intubation, they were not able to see that it was due to the phenobarbital, that there was some other condition that likely led to the intubation. And so it shows you that it, it, our patients actually tolerate it fairly well. Another thing I like about phenobarbital is it actually is very predictable pharmacokinetics. So we know that the volume distribution is about 0.65 liters per kg. So you can use your go back to pharmacokinetics and use your wonderful equation of concentration equals dose over volume and distribution. And you can kind of basically predict what your patient's phenobarbital level would be when you use it. Now, we don't know what, it, what is a therapeutic range for phenobarbital. Those are all studied in epilepsy. But what we do know is we do know what the toxic levels are. And so I can pretty much know like with what doses I'm giving my patient that they're staying well below the level that, that is even close to toxicity. Now, where it gets a little tricky is when you start adding in other CNS depressants, particularly when you do combine it with benzodiazepines. They're synergistic with benzodiazepines. And so whenever you do combine that, while you still can predict that level, a level of, of 30, while 40 is considered, 50 is considered toxic, when you add benzodiazepines on it, a level of 30 may have pushed them over and then they become comatose. So for us, that's why we chose, we wanted to do one drug. We do not encourage using benzodiazepines on top of phenobarbital. However, we do use it with obviously opioids and other CNS depressants and have had no problems that we know of that we can definitely point out was phenobarbital. So yeah, I, I like I like the predictability of it. I think the safety profile from all the recent studies that are coming out, we're not really seeing this big respiratory depression need for intubation due to phenobarbital when you're using it at the right doses. And so I just think it's a, actually ends up being a cleaner drug. You have to use less, less adjunctive medications and makes the overall process simpler. I'll piggyback on that, Jen. We, we've been using phenobarbital monotherapy at Yale as well. Certainly our, our medical ICU had popularized the, the so-called Yale Alcohol Withdrawal Protocol or YAP. More recently, our surgical trauma group has, has actually published on our monotherapy protocol. So shameless plug for our SICU pharmacist, Mahmoud Amar, and one of my partners, Robert Becker, who recently published this year in Annals of Pharmacotherapy, our protocol using phenobarbital as monotherapy for prevention of alcohol withdrawal syndrome. And we've had quite good experience with this strategy. In our study, at least only 10% of our patients ended up requiring intubation. And, and I think in many circumstances that that was not necessarily strictly related to the use of the phenobarbital. And, you know, overall, I, I think, again, we don't tend to use the benzodiazepines in addition to the, the phenobarb. We sometimes do use Presidex, which we could probably touch on on that because I, I think current guidelines would suggest that Presidex should certainly not be used as a monotherapy for prevention of alcohol withdrawal syndrome. But as an adjunct, I, I think many of us are finding that useful. But I, I've found this to be a, a nice strategy as well. So our, our approach, basically, we, we determine risk for alcohol withdrawal syndrome. We determine risk for sedation and respiratory compromise in a patient who's already been intubated for, for whatever their, their course dictated, whether they've had a TBI and needed 
get intubation for airway protection, et cetera. Sometimes that, that's less of a concern, but for patients who are not intubated, certainly assessing sedation and respiratory compromise, recognizing that patients who are age 65 and older, those with uh, hepatic dysfunction, liver cirrhosis, head injury are going to be a bit higher risk for sedation. And then risk factors for respiratory compromise, those of our patients who may be at rib fractures, pneumothorax, have a chest tube in place, pulmonary contusions, those patients may be a little bit higher risk. And so determining both risk for alcohol withdrawal and risk for sedation, respiratory compromise, we sort of place patients in in buckets and we administer anywhere from a 10 milligram per kilogram loading dose to a 15 milligram per kilogram loading dose. Again, sort of balancing the risks of sedation, respiratory depression, and their actual risk for withdrawal. They get their loading dose which we administer over three doses, three, three hours apart. And then we do a phenobarbital maintenance taper regimen over days two through seven. And that's sequentially lower doses that are given over that time period. And we, we have had some circumstances where, where we would consider reinitiating the taper. But I, I think in many of those cases, if you're still worried about you know, mental status changes that, that you're perhaps attributing to alcohol withdrawal, it's important to reevaluate the patient and, and ensure that there isn't some other etiology for their ongoing delirium or presentation that's making you concerned for ongoing alcohol withdrawal. So that brings to me a question. I'm very comfortable with phenobarbies here at Vanderbilt, but the question of who gets prophylactic treatment versus who gets reactive treatment and the differences between phenobarb use and if you're using benzos, because in my experience, benzos have been much more a reactive type thing, right? Someone scores high on the CWAS scale and you start giving them Ativan or Versa or what have you. Phenobarb is much more of a identify the patient and give it beforehand. So how do you all see the dichotomy between prophylactically treating patients versus reactively treating patients or just observing them? when you're not using phenobarbital, when you're using benzos or clonidine or pure and whiskey? Wait a second. <laughs> are, we, are we advocating for giving patients alcohol, Jeremy? <laughs> I would never. I am fairly certain that the most recent guidelines from ASAM, which is the American Society of Addiction Medicine, specifically state that we are not to give patients oral or intravenous alcohol, period. Jen? Noted. I was actually very excited to see that addition to the, gu- to the guidelines because it gets brought up quite a bit. We could go to that if we want to, but, um, but I think you, you bring up a good point. So you're, you're basically when you're going to say if, if we're using benzodiazepines, what, what protocols we use? Is that your question? Yeah, essentially, pheno we use prophylactically a lot when we identify the patient, but can you prophylactically treat patients with benzodiazepines? The guidelines do recommend front-loading for patients that are at high risk of severe complicated withdrawals, and those are those patients that have had a history of DTs or, or alcohol seizures. So you can front load. I do know at Vanderbilt, if you do use the CWA protocol, which we, we don't in our, our trauma unit, but in the general medicine population, it is, it is used quite frequently. They will front load with three doses of PO days of PAM 
of 20 milligrams for three doses, and then we'll then go to the CWAS scale. So they will front load those patients. So you are kind of in a way prophylaxing for the highest risk patients. Patients that don't meet our high risk, which is the history of DTs and alcohol seizures, just go on to the symptom triggered, which has had extensive literature that does support that if you're going to use benzodiazepines, the symptom triggered approach is the best way. It decreases duration and amount of treatment needed and amount of benzodiazepines used. However, I think the biggest debate or controversy, at least in the surgical critical care trauma world, is what is the appropriate symptom severity scale to use? CWA, I know, has, while it's been extensively studied and is, is the most commonly used severity symptom severity scale, I think we all know that there are some cons to it, particularly with our patients that are intubated because you do have to be able to verbalize in order to complete that scale, or if they're delirious, or if they're even in already two delirium tremens, it's very hard to score someone on a CWA scale. In addition, you add trauma on top of that. So you have someone with a head injury, or, and then you also have all the other reasons for them to have that sympathetic response that we're seeing. And so it can lead to false positive CWA, CWA scores. And then thus, unneeded benzodiazepines, which we know can lead to delirium. In addition, there's actually a study that correlated the severity of TBI with increasing CWA scores, um, which I thought was really interesting. So again, just brings with the point of, is CWA the best scale? When we use benzodiazepines prior to going to phenobarbital, we did not use CWA. There are different scales out there that you can use that have been developed for patients that are intubated or are delirious and can't and you can't score them and can't use CWA. And there's the BOS. You can use the MIND scale. Um, there's also been kind of a push to using RAS since it's already our nurses are already well trained on it. It's very simple to do. I know for us, it's already easily documented in our electronic medical record. So if we were to use BOS or, or MINDS, we would have to create a place to document it in our EMR. So RAS for us is very simple to use. We already, we don't have to do any additional education on it. So some people are now using RAS as well. So yes, I'd say that which scale to use is still kind of up for debate, but I would definitely say that CWA is becoming a lot more controversial and maybe not the go-to symptom severity scale for our patient population. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree, Jen. I think the CWA scores have been validated in patients who are not critically ill. The M-MINES, or the so-called Minnesota Detoxification Scale, Modified Minnesota, that has been validated in ICU patients. And actually, some of my colleagues here within the Department of Medicine have recently tried to correlate CWA and M-MINES and they showed that these do correlate well, but only at lower CWA scores. So for our critically ill patients, and particularly those patients who, who are manis- manifesting more concerning signs for alcohol withdrawal, the CWA may not be the, the best option for those patients. So certainly your, your Richmond agitation sedation score may be of some use. And other, I think, really objective scoring criteria are important. Certainly the CWA depends to some extent on the patient's ability to to participate and report symptoms of anxiety, hallucinations, et cetera, as part of, of that particular scoring system. So it sounds like there's a shared concern in pentabarb and in benzodiazepines of respiratory depression, at least to some degree with, with both. 
What is the role of other adjunctive medications like alpha-2 agonists, antiepileptics, and gabapentin in your practice and at your facilities? We will use, we will go to dexmedetomidine if agitation is so severe that the patient becomes harmful to themselves or the staff. And we kind of find that it's, it's a good bridge. So while we're trying to get to that optimal sedation with the phenobarbital, the the dexmedetomidine is bridging us to that point. And then we're able to wean off of it, I'd say fairly quickly. I, most patients don't stay on it for, I know at least not 48 hours. Usually they're able to start weaning within 24. So I definitely think it's a good bridge. I do think it definitely should not be used monotherapy. With this mechanism of action, it's not going to prevent seizures. And of course, that's what we're one of the things we're most worried about. So I would not advocate using any alpha-2s as monotherapy for any patients because of that, that reason. Jen, just, just to clarify, it's okay to use phenobarbital and Presidex at the same time if a patient is, is requiring both of those. Absolutely. Right. Yes. I do that. <laughs> yes. Well, since, since dexmedetomidine doesn't have, doesn't cause respiratory depression, you're okay with using it. And like I said, it really does seem to do wonders in those patients that do progress to DTs. It just kind of gives us that time period to get that phenobarbital up to the right serum level. Any other adjuncts that you'd recommend? Do you use Seroquel at all in your protocols or with agitation? Anything else you can talk about? We will use the atypical antipsychotics. The the ASAM guidelines do actually recommend using those for patients that are agitated or hallucinating. So we will use that as adjuncts. We, of course, try to use phenobarbital monotherapy as much as possible, but those are an option if the patient has just become belligerent and a harm to themselves. So we will we'll pull that out if we have to, but we do try to prefer to do everything with just the phenobarbital. I've run across some patients that seem to really respond well to Presidex, dexmedetomidine. Do you all have any experience with, in those specific patients, trans, transitioning over to clonidine, either oral or transdermal, and how, how do you usually approach that? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I certainly have to admit that I learned that strategy from, from Jen here during my time uh, training with her at Vanderbilt, and, and I have certainly found that to be a useful strategy. So yes, transitioning to oral clonidine after using a Presidex infusion in a patient may be a reasonable option for someone who continues to manifest hyperactivity type symptoms. Jen, you, you taught me everything I know about that. So <laughs> what would you say? I'll say we've actually, since going to phenobarbital, I don't really, can't really think of an instance where we've had to go to clonidine off of Presidex. I'll say beforehand when we, we did dabble in the gabapentin clonidine guanfacine before we went to phenobarb. And so in that case, we would use clonidine to help with, with weaning off the Presidex, just starting with 0.1 migs Q8 and then going up from there, trying to wean off the Presidex. But with honestly, with phenol, with the phenobarbital, I don't know that I've actually had to use it. Once we get them up to that right level, we're able to wean off the, the Presidex fairly quickly and don't need other adjuncts. Jeremy, would you say that's your experience too? Yeah, I honestly can't remember a patient that we've had to go to Presidex once we've had them on phenobarb or PRN phenobarb doses in the longest time I can't remember. 
I'd say it's only been an, it's only been a handful. I believe we put about in between four to 600 patients now on phenobarbital since we started our protocol. And I can maybe think of 10, maybe a little higher incidences, but not, not very many within the last over a year in all those patients that we have to go to, to Presidex. I have a quick question and comment. So in the past, it was always kind of the, the joke that the pharmacist would have the alcohol down in the department and we could go raid the, the stores for these patients. But obviously that's not in the guidelines anymore. Can you explain why we've uh, gone away from that? And why they have been removed by giving our patients alcohol? Because you talk to older surgeons and they definitely, I remember ordering three cans of beer for my patients and they would make it through the hospital and, and we would see that they would be happy. And, you know, why, why is that recommendation gone away now? Absolutely. We used to do that at Vanderbilt back and at least I know in 2014, beer was on formulary to be ordered with meals, but we, we went away from the enteral alcohol because sometimes well, one, patients aren't always truthful about exactly what quantity of alcohol they drink. So you may be giving them a couple beers with their meals, but that's not, that's nowhere close to the amount of alcohol that they really drink um, prior to coming to the hospital. And so you have this false security that you're treating their alcohol withdrawal and actually you're under treating them. And so that's why for us, we went away from the inner alcohol and then with IV alcohol, there are side effects with it, not better outcomes. And that's why the, the new guidelines definitely um, remove those from recommendations. One other consideration is that at least in the world of addiction medicine, enteral ethanol is established uh, to be a strong relapse trigger for patients experiencing alcohol use disorders and provision of enteral ethanol may be construed as a tacit sort of approval for that patient to be using that substance. And certainly ethically, that might draw some concern in terms of what we're doing. And, and really our, our goal is to help support patients and to help them recover from, from uh, any substance use disorders that they might suffer from. And kind of a follow-up question to that. If a patient says, I drink half a pint of alcohol a day, or I have a six pack of beer, do we kind of have a general idea of what maybe that prophylactic dose of, if it is going to be a benzodiazepine or a phenobarbital, do, do we know an idea of where that may correlate to where we may be able to start in terms of that ordering that medication? Or is it kind of like we start at a general low level and then we ramp it up based on symptoms? Any like actual like how to order the medication guidelines do you guys have? Now, trying to determine their risk of withdrawal with the amount that they drink, it definitely has shown there is an association between the severity of withdrawals and how long and how heavy of a drinker someone is. However, finding an actual definition of the exact number of drinks and proof of alcohol and the severity is not really, is not in the literature. We had a hard time finding that, but for us, so it's focusing for me, the risk assessment focuses more on that history of if they have had withdrawals, because if they have withdrawn before, it's a very good predictor that they're going to withdraw again. Every time that they go through a withdrawal, it's called the kindling effect or the kindling hypothesis that basically every time that you withdraw, you have more progressive withdrawals the next time. 
So I think really focusing more on what is their history with when they do stop alcohol is the best indication for exactly what pathway you're going to use when it comes to dosing, particularly with, with phenobarbital. I do love Yale's dosing strategy with the loading dose basing off of your respiratory depression risk, your sedation risk. I think it's a wonderful way to do it. We do it, we try to go an oral route as much as possible because the IV formulation is, is more expensive. So in the oral formulation has great bioavailability. So we try to go the PO route if they do have a, have a history of withdrawals, particularly DTs or seizures, they will start at a higher dose on our taper. So we'll start them at a hundred, three times a day, and then we'll taper them down over three days. That's a modification of a protocol from one of my colleagues that he did at his prior institution where they did that over a six day taper. We just want to do a little bit shorter since we weren't as experienced with phenobarbital or a little scared to use it at first, but I would say with experience, um, those high-risk patients, I like the load. I, I really like the front loading for those high-risk patients. Uh, Lisa, you want to add anything to that? Sure. So I, I think I agree, Jen. I think the, the biggest risk factor in terms of someone being higher risk for alcohol withdrawal syndrome is going to be a previous history of delirium tremens or a previous history of alcohol withdrawal seizures and recent alcohol use. Certainly we know that it's the cessation or the reduction in alcohol use that, that prompts this syndrome. So those are our more higher risk patients. Moderate risk patients might be those who you know, use alcohol on a daily basis. I think there are different parameters for, for what you might describe as unhealthy alcohol use among men and women. Really, there's, it's, it's tough to sort of say exactly how many drinks we're talking here, but I, I would say anybody who's using alcohol on a daily basis and consuming large quantities with each sitting, and then those who have experienced withdrawal in the past, seizures in the past, are going to be at higher risk. And then we will quantify patients into the high risk bracket and then the moderate risk bracket. And then again, we'll look at risk for sedation, respiratory compromise, and we will give patients anywhere from 10 to 15 milligrams per kilogram loading dose. And we'll do that for three doses. And that's, we usually use the IV formulation, uh, but we can use the, the enteral PO formulation as well for the taper or maintenance regimen, which we can continue for a total of seven days. So day one is the loading doses and then days two through seven are the maintenance doses. And if anybody's interested in sort of starting a protocol like this at their institution, I'd certainly recommend the paper by Mahmoud Amar and colleagues published in Annals of Pharmacotherapy. I think it does a nice job of detailing exactly how we approach the phenobarbital monotherapy at Yale. So if you're interested, have a look at that paper. There's a nice algorithm that's provided there. Would one of y'all go over the time course of withdrawals at what point we would expect the specific types of withdrawal that might happen in a patient who's uh, alcohol dependent? It's really that the DSM-5 defines alcohol withdrawal syndrome and Really, there's, there's two criterion. Criterion number one is that there has been a cessation or reduction in alcohol use that has been typically heavy and prolonged. And again, it's hard to put exact numbers of, of drinks there, but you know that cessation or reduction is sort of key piece number one. And then key piece number two would be development of certain signs and symptoms. And usually that's going to happen within several hours to a few days 
after the cessation of alcohol use. So I think that's often the time frame that we think about. And you, you know, I think we all have in our heads kind of this 72 hour window that seems to be when we start to see these types of symptoms. And again, you know, we're looking at autonomic hyperactivity, tremors, nausea, vomiting for those patients who are awake and talking to it with us, they might describe uh, visual auditory tactile hallucinations, psychomotor agitation, and then certainly the most concerning features would be seizure activity. And, you know, it's, it's, it may happen within a few hours. It may happen sort of within that 72 hour window. I would say I'm always sort of cautious, even within, you know, the first five days of, of admission to the hospital, you know, that, that would be sort of my general timeline that I'm thinking about. So let's say a patient evaded our questioning or misled us in the beginning, and now they've made it out of, you know, the unit or wherever they were initially, and we're a couple of days into their hospital stay, and now they're showing symptoms. Are your strategies the same, or do you have different strategies for kind of rescue treatment? My strategy is the same. If they didn't meet our risk stratification, because either they were untruthful and we didn't catch it, if they start showing signs of withdrawal, we will start them on our, on our low-risk protocol, and then we, they can get IV doses of phenobarbital as rescue with a goal of RAS of zero to negative one whenever they develop symptoms. I have just a follow-up question to that. Where do you guys end up treating your trauma patients when they go into alcohol withdrawal? Do you move them back to the ICU? Do you have a step down? Do you have a protocol, a protocol for the floor? Your guys' thoughts on that? Sure, I, I can comment on that. We are treating a patient for alcohol withdrawal syndrome or somebody that is high risk that we are initiating therapy for. The phenobarbital therapy must be initiated in a monitored setting. For us, that is generally our ICU setting. We do have a step down that is continuous monitoring, but generally these patients will be at least initiated on the phenobarbital therapy in the ICU setting with continuous monitoring, frequent nursing checks. And if they are doing well with that protocol and not demonstrating any concerning, you know, hemodynamic changes or respiratory changes, then they can potentially move out to, you know, our step down or even to a floor setting and continue the uh, enteral taper. But again, that's if it's been initiated in a monitored higher level of care and the patient has demonstrated stability with that regimen. For us, we, since we don't front load our patients, unless they're actually in DTs. And then at that point, they're usually in the ICU, but sometimes on our step down side, but because we use the, we use oral and then we don't load our patients honestly have gotten phenobarbital at, at any location in the hospital. Some of our patients are still in the emergency room for at least first 24 hours due to bed management. And so They'll, we'll start the phenobarbital protocol down there, even in the emergency room, since it's already, it's a scheduled taper. And we, again, we use RAS for um, if we need any extra breakthrough doses. And so our nurses throughout the hospital are trained in RAS and be and able to use it. I will say if patients are starting to require breakthrough doses, they are, we tend to have moved them up to our step down side and really before we even get breakthrough doses, it's usually kind of, the nurses usually alerted one of the providers to come to bedside to help assess that patient. So it becomes a group kind of decision if it's alcohol withdrawal and if they need to have a breakthrough dose of phenobarbital. But I'd say most of our patients are treated on step down 
unless they go into DTs at that point that we will transfer them to the ICU. Okay, uh, so what are y'all's thoughts on involvement of different specialists in the care of these patients, whether it be your psychologists, toxicologists, do you always have pharmacy on board, or do you consult them independently? I'd like to hear what y'all's thoughts are. Sure, we're, we're really fortunate. We have excellent ICU pharmacists who are on rounds with us in the ICU and, and uh, many times are, are helping us make these decisions about therapy for alcohol withdrawal syndrome. In terms of consulting other specialists, psychiatry, psychology, many times if we recognize that a patient that has a known diagnosis of alcohol withdrawal issues, many times once they are maybe on the floor, I'll see about getting psychiatry involved if the patient is amenable to that. I've had patients ask me, you know, hey, I, I realize I have a problem. Can I see a psychiatrist who can help follow up and make sure I stay on the right track? So I'll, I'll get those patients established. Certainly, you know, as an outpatient, we want them to follow up. And many times I will get an inpatient consult, particularly if the patient is asking specifically for those services. Are there any other resources that you would try to get the patient engaged in? Is um, like Alcohol Anonymous something you would refer them to or any other group therapy or is it always a psychiatrist? Personally, I, I haven't referred any patients to AA uh, or any other similar programs from the hospital setting. For those patients who do screen positive on our SBIRT screening for hazardous alcohol use, our social workers will work with, with those patients and provide them resources in follow-up. And again, for, for patients who I am particularly concerned about, I will engage psychiatry sooner rather than later. One other thing that I will mention for, for our patients who are suffering from alcohol withdrawal syndrome, we should also be assessing suicide risk in these patients. I believe that is part of the ASAM guidelines as well. And certainly engaging a psychiatry for those patients should they screen positive for suicidality is appropriate. All right. Well, this has been a very engaging conversation. I really appreciate our guests and our guest moderators. A plug for the East Minute. If anyone hasn't checked them out, it's another resource produced by the Online Education Committee for three minutes of up-to-date information about common trauma topics. With that, I want to thank everyone and have a great evening. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the EAST.